I want to start by asking you to think of a passage of Scripture, if you can, that's particularly hard for you. Something that maybe makes you uncomfortable. Maybe it makes you cringe a little bit. Can you think of one? The only one? You don't have to shout it out. If not, that's great. Maybe you can come up here and preach the sermon this morning. But many of us do have these passages, these places that we struggle with. We don't know quite what to do with them. They don't seem to fit into the rest of the picture for us. Maybe it's the conquest of Canaan in the book of Joshua. These stories of total destruction that sound so callous and bloodthirsty. Maybe it's the verses about hell, about eternal judgment, fire that never goes out. Maybe it's those verses in Paul's epistles about women in church and keeping silent in church and man being the head of the woman. Or verses about sexual ethics that seem so out of step with the assumptions of our society today. Maybe it's the verses about slavery in Paul's epistles, where Paul tells the slaves to obey their masters. Maybe it's all of these and more. These are not easy passages for us. Whenever I think about these kinds of hard passages of Scripture, I usually remember something I heard Esau Macaulay say. Uh, Esau Macaulay is a writer and New Testament scholar, teaches just down the road from here at Wheaton College. And a couple of years ago, he uh, met with us here at Redeemer over Zoom as part of a Core at Nine series at the time. And one of the things he said in that talk has stayed with me, and it comes out of a book he's written. He was talking about these kinds of hard passages. And I think specifically he was talking about the slavery passages in the New Testament. He said, we have to treat these passages like Jacob and the angel. We have to wrestle with them and then refuse to let them go unless they bless us. Maybe some of you remember when he said that. It's a beautiful way to think about Holy Scripture, I think. And not just for the hard passages, the ones that are, offend us. Maybe also the confusing passages, just the ones we don't understand. Maybe all of Scripture, even our favorite parts. We have to wrestle with it and then refuse to let it go unless it blesses us. Our temptation is always to ignore parts of it, whether because it's hard to understand or because it actually offends us. Sometimes we just want to elide those places. A little like Thomas Jefferson, as you maybe know. Thomas Jefferson actually cut out the parts of the Bible that he didn't like. He literally cut them out with scissors. And he made his own Bible, the Jefferson Bible, it's called. Maybe we don't actually get our scissors out, but that can still kind of be what happens in effect. What Dr. McCauley is saying is that our attitude towards Scripture especially the hardest places, should always be one of faith. We confess by faith that God's words, all of them, are for our good. And then we hang in there doggedly and demand that they bless us. That's what Jacob does with the angel. He's tenacious. He hangs on and he demands a blessing. But he's also submitting to God's authority. 
He recognizes that this man is the source of blessing, that he is at this man's mercy. And then the blessing comes. His faith is well-placed. And what a blessing it is. We'll come to that in a few minutes. Well, I think Dr. McCauley's advice is the perfect way to start to open up what is one of the oddest and most lovely stories in all the Bible to me. I love it because it is so strange. Why does Jacob start wrestling with this stranger? (laughs) If I'm in the wilderness alone at night and I meet a strange man, I don't say, want to (laughs) wrestle? What are they wrestling about? And if this man is, as becomes clear, God himself, how is Jacob able to prevail? It's so strange. The whole Bible is like that in a way. We'll never be able to explain anything, everything about any passage or get to the bottom of it. I think we can still make some sense of this story, but it's also still a mystery. It operates at a sort of odd obtuse angle to our normal everyday experience, even more than the rest of the Bible. That's what I like about it, too. To make sense of this odd story, I think we have to start by understanding it in the context of Jacob's life. It's because this is the climactic moment for Jacob. This will be the defining event of his entire life. So let's make a quick overview of Jacob's life to set up this story. Jacob was born a twin, literally grasping at his brother's heel. And his name reflects that. It means the supplanter. Jacob wants what he doesn't have. And he will trick, deceive, and manipulate to get it. He takes advantage of his brother Esau's hunger and Esau's foolishness to steal the birthright, if you remember that story. Uh... Later, he deceives their aged father to steal Esau's firstborn blessing, too. Esau is enraged, not surprisingly, and he wants to kill Jacob. So Jacob flees, taking with him a birthright and a blessing that are not really his. Jacob acquires great wealth for himself, again by conniving and tricking his uncle Laban. He's blessed with a big family and 12 sons. What more could a patriarch want? but he still lives in exile. He has not yet inherited what is now his, what comes with his stolen birthright. So now, in our story today, he's on his way home, and Esau is coming to meet him, and he is terrified. It seems that now, instead of being established as the new patriarch of his family, which is what he wants and what he has stolen, he's going to get his comeuppance for his thievery. And as we can see in the verses leading up to Uh, the wrestling match, Jacob is terrified. His sins are about to find him out. And so typical of his character, he's making plans and machinations to try and protect himself and to improve his chances. He's sending envoys ahead to beg Esau's favor. He's dividing his family into smaller groups so that if Esau attacks one, maybe the others can get away. He's sending extravagant gifts ahead to Esau. He's praying to God, too. He tells God that he's unworthy of all the blessings he's received, and he begs for God's protection and God's mercy. 
This is the setting then for the story of Jacob and the angel. Jacob has lived his life to this point as Jacob, the supplanter. And what he has, he has gotten by grasping, deceiving, and by his naked ambition. Now he faces a reckoning. Now the person he has hurt the most, the person he has stolen the most from, is coming to meet him in the morning. Everything about Jacob here speaks to his vulnerability. For all his plans and schemes, everything is now at risk. He's outnumbered, exposed, afraid. And as our story starts, he's alone, late at night. Now we come to the wrestling match itself. The text doesn't explain why they wrestle. It just says, a man wrestled with him until daybreak. It doesn't say whether Jacob starts it or the man does. What is clear, though, is that this is an expression of Jacob's own character. This has been his mode of life all along, to strive, to struggle, to antagonize. We don't know how it started, but this wrestling match makes sense to us. We think, of course, that's what Jacob would do. This wrestling match is a metaphor for Jacob's entire life. We often refer to this story as Jacob wrestling with the angel, but the text calls it a man. It's only as the story goes along that it slowly dawns on us. That's a pun. <laughs> Sorry. Um, who this man is. The wrestling match seems pretty even. Uh, neither is able to get the upper hand on the other. But when the man touches Jacob's hip and dislocates it, uh, we realize that there's something else going on. That's not something that most men can do. One commentator describes this as an awesome reserve of power. This man seems to be holding back, allowing Jacob to struggle with him. So that's our first hint that this man is maybe not only a man. And now daybreak is nearing. Even though Jacob is now injured, he will not give up. He's beginning to realize who it is he's wrestling with. The man says, let me go, for it is daybreak. Almost like he doesn't want the sun to come up and reveal him more plainly. And Jacob responds with the words that sum up his whole life. I will not let you go unless you bless me. And by bestowing the blessing, the man shows that he does indeed, indeed have the authority to bless, another clue to his identity. And when the encounter is over, what does Jacob say? I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. If there was any doubt before, it is clear now. This man is God himself. So the text calls him a man, and as a man, his strength seems roughly equal to Jacob's. But Jacob recognizes him as God, too. He is somehow both a man and God, or God in the form of a man. So then why do we call him an angel? This is a, a slight uh, detour, but I think I left it in because I think it's important for our understanding of this story. There's a character in... Uh, the Old Testament, called the Angel of the Lord, as you may know, shows up a number of times, appearing to various people, appears to Hagar, to Abraham, to Moses, to the prophet Balaam, among others. 
And while the man who wrestles with Jacob is not called an angel here, he's just called a man. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, he is called an angel. Hosea, the prophet Hosea refers to this story, and he says, Jacob struggled with the angel and overcame him. So this story is usually included with the angel of the Lord stories of the Old Testament. The Old Testament word for angel does not only mean what we would normally call an angel, an angelic being. It just means a messenger or a sent one. So the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is not only God, but he's also sent by God. He is not Christ incarnate yet. Jesus has not yet been born as a baby. Won't be for a long time. But these stories are generally understood as being somehow manifestations of the pre-incarnate Christ. Christ is the person of the Trinity who is sent by God. John's gospel calls Jesus the one the Father sent into the world. And this man is called the angel of the Lord, or the sent one of the Lord. In some real but mysterious way, Jacob is wrestling with Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. He is wrestling with the word of God, just like Esau told us to do. That's Esau Macaulay, not Jacob's brother. (laughs) This is a two-Esau sermon. It's almost as if Jacob realizes now that it has been this man, not his brother Esau or his uncle Laban. It's been this man that he's been wrestling with all along. And as he realizes who it is, he does what we would expect Jacob to do. He demands a blessing. There are two blessings in this story and two names. The first blessing was the one Jacob had already stolen from his brother when his father Isaac had blessed him, thinking he was Esau. It was a real blessing, and Isaac's words over Jacob were true, but it was a stolen blessing. He had got it by his trickery, and it had been meant for someone else. Now Jacob receives a blessing from God himself, and the new blessing surpasses the old one. The new blessing is the blessing of a new name, a new identity. Jacob is forever changed in this story. Jacob, as we said, means the supplanter, the one taking what wasn't his by deceit and scheming. Now the man tells him his name will be Israel, the one who struggles with God. Because the man says, you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. How did Jacob overcome exactly? Not by his great virtue, certainly. Not by his physical strength either. Now that his hip is out of joint, he can no longer wrestle properly. But he still refuses to give up. The man doesn't say, uh, let's stop wrestling. He says, let me go. (laughs) What had been a wrestling match is now just one man holding on to the other. The sun is starting to break over the horizon. Jacob is at his wit's end. He can't win. But everything is at stake. All he can do is hold on. Jacob overcomes simply by clinging to God desperately, refusing to let go, and demanding a blessing. It is an act of faith 
to recognize that blessing comes from God and nowhere else, and to put himself at Jacob's mercy. The theologian J.I. Packer puts it this way. The nature of Jacob's prevailing with God was simply that he held on to God while God weakened him and wrought wrought in him the spirit of submission. That he had desired God's blessing so much that he clung to God through all this painful humbling till he came low enough for God to raise him up by speaking peace to him and by assuring him that he need not fear about Esau anymore. That's the end of the quote. His new name is related to his old name. His identity is not wiped away. It is redeemed. What had been his tragic flaw, his toxic trait, is now the foundation for a whole nation. Israel, the one who struggles with God. And from now on, Jacob is different. We don't see him conniving and scheming anymore. Not that he's perfect, but he seems more settled, resting in his new identity and his new blessing. To illustrate this, look what happens on the next day when he meets his brother Esau. He actually gives Esau back the blessing that he had stolen. He and his sons repeatedly bow down before Esau and call him Lord, showing that Esau is the most honored person there. Isaac's blessing over Jacob had said that Jacob would be Lord over his brothers, Lord over Esau, and that his mother's sons would bow down to him. So Jacob is deliberately reversing that here. Also, Jacob gives Esau more gifts, flocks of animals, and he says to him, please accept my blessing, which has been brought to you. He is deliberately giving back to Esau the blessing that he had stolen. And I think this is why Esau is so (laughs) good-natured and doesn't attack him. It's not that Esau is just such a good guy and happy to let bygones be bygones. He sees that Jacob is humbling himself and giving him back what he had stolen. Why would Jacob do this? Does this seem like something Jacob would do? It does not. But this is the new Jacob. This is Israel. And he knows that he has now been given a better blessing. He doesn't need the old blessing anymore. And he knows that it had never been really his anyway. He had stolen the first blessing. This one was freely given. This blessing was his own, untarnished, uncontrived. Jacob becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, not because he stole the birthright away from Esau, but because God had chosen him all along. What do we do when we read those hard passages in Scripture? What do we do when our faith is weak? Maybe it's not the hard passages of Scripture for you. Maybe it's something you've been through, an experience you've had. Maybe you're just dry and it's all a routine. I think the best answer I know of to that question (laughs) is to do what Esau does, or not Esau, Jacob, to do what Jacob does. Cling to God's words and demand that they bless us. Don't let go. What does it mean to cling to God's word? What does that look like? 
Well, God's words are the scriptures, of course, and also his word of promise to us in the sacraments. Keep yourself in the scriptures regularly. The daily office is the best way I know to do this. Don't give up on the Bible, even the hard parts. Don't forsake the sacraments. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from God's word. We can't expect our faith to grow if we remove it from its source. What is Christ's blessing, Christ's blessing for Jacob? It's a new name, a new identity. He interprets Jacob. We often think that we have to interpret God's word, and that's true, of course. We do. But I want to say that in an even greater sense, it's God's word that interprets us. The book of Hebrews says, the word of God is living and active, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. All of Jacob's life to this point, all the scheming and the trickery, his sin, all the confused and disconnected mess that he had made, Jesus interprets it all in a single word. He doesn't do away with Jacob's identity, with what made Jacob who he was. He redeems it, and he remakes it all into something beautiful, something so great that it becomes his own chosen nation of Israel. God's word does that for us too. It takes all our confusion and our hurt our sin, and our weakness, and interprets them and remakes them into something more wonderful than we can ask or imagine. Why wouldn't we cling to such a God in expectant faith? Why wouldn't we submit to his blessing? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.